0: This podcast is an unedited excerpt from a live MCLE webcast. See the episode notes for details about the speakers and links to the program's full video and audio recording. Get access to everything MCLE offers for one low subscription fee with the MCLE online pass. Try it for free for a month. Go to www.mcle.org onlinepass Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being registered.
1: Good afternoon. Um, My name is Monica Shaw. I am a partner at Zalkin, Duncan & Bernstein, uh, a firm that um, focuses on uh, uh, employment law, plaintiff side uh, employment law uh, in Boston. We also do criminal defense work and Title IX work. Um, I'm here uh, with um, uh, Rebecca LaPierre, who can introduce her practice as well.
0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. As Monica said, I'm Rebecca LaPierre. I am an attorney with the firm Morgan Brown and Joy based out of Boston. Uh, We handle management side uh, defense uh, in employment and and labor law. Um, We represent employers uh, in every spectrum of employment and labor law from policy drafting and HR advice to uh, managing and defending employers in uh at the agency level and
1: through litigation so we're we're here today to, to um, do a two-hour session on um provo- proving employment discrimination and retaliation claims um focusing on issue spotting as well as tracking evidence um throughout uh throughout a, a potential case uh and so we have a lot of issues to cover um uh, on our agenda um but we're going to start with um, first, just talking about basics um, and kind of giving giving some framework to, uh, to our discussion, which is going to cover a lot of content. Um, so, you know, many of you may be uh, on this program because you are um, in the midst of, of um, dealing with cases like this, or you may just be beginning um, the process of, um, of learning and um, kind of understanding employment law. Um, I, I think right now we're, what I'm seeing as a practitioner um, that represents employees is is a lot of cases um, that kind of run the gamut. Uh, and so what I wanted to sort of start with is this framework of you know we're saying proving employment discrimination and retaliation cases. Well, those can those can run the gamut from um, discrimination based on a variety of protected classes: race, sex, um, age, uh, disability. Uh, you know, among other things. Um, and they can be um, specific disparate treatment cases, or they can be hostile work environment cases um, that involve harassment um, and um, co-worker versus supervisory uh, liability type cases. Um, and then all of these cases potentially have um, the risk of having a retaliation component to them. Uh, and so we're going to cover that um, as well. Uh, and we're gonna talk about these cases in terms of the stages of, of w- when they come in. Um, so um, it could be that you're just at the beginning of um, providing um, guidance to a potential um, client who's an employee, or if you're on the management side, providing guidance to your client um, on, on issues. Um, and that's just doing it, just doing kind of case evaluation and, and providing background guidance um, or you could be in the middle of um, <laughs> negotiations and the beginning of of um thinking through litigation in a case. Um, or you could be filing at the MCAD or or EEOC um, and maybe in, in the midst of that process, the agency process, which um has different different factors to consider. Um and then finally, you know, we're we're gonna talk about court litigation um and specifically how to. Um, think about these cases in terms of um, both summary judgment and trial uh, and and proving, you know, being able to prove your prima facie case um, and prove that you have disputed issues of fact if you're plaintiff's side or, or dispute that um, if you're on the other side um, for summary judgment, and then ultimately, you know, how you prove the ultimate question um, uh, at trial. Um, And finally, what I wanted to flag is um, this notion of kind of circumstantial evidence. That's part of what this program is. How do you um, how do you track the evidence? How do you gather circumstantial evidence uh, of discrimination? And um, that's one of the key key things that we talk about as lawyers in these cases is um, is how do you prove discrimination when discrimination isn't as overt um, these days? And so one one thing to really focus on and and make sure of is that you're not missing the direct evidence of discrimination. There are types of cases out there where where the the discrimination is direct and you may not need to go through this whole process of um, burden shifting that we're going to talk about um, shortly. So um, I've I've noticed over the the years that, you know, pregnancy discrimination cases can be more, more overt and you may not need to prove those with circumstantial evidence as much. Um as well as age cases. Um, and so we're just we wanted to flag for you that um, that a lot of our focus in this um, in this two hours is going to be on circumstantial evidence. but you shouldn't forget about um, the fact that there may be a text message that that um, lays out very clearly the reasons why um, you know your client um, you know, either has terminated someone or is on the receiving end of a termination. Uh, and so um, don't forget about that. Obviously, those are the those are the some of the most serious cases, um, but they are out there. And um, and so wanted to make sure that um, that we at least address that as we're stepping into talking about circumstantial evidence and um, the elements of proof in cases. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca to, to talk about um, to start talking about the elements of claims. Thanks Monica. Um
0: yeah, and you know, like Monica said, we're going to be talking a lot about pretext and circumstantial evidence um and if there's if you have any questions about that or when uh evidence might be more direct, <laughs> um we're happy to answer those questions as well. Um because as Monica said, it does occasionally happen um where someone's just said something that they really should not have said. Um and they make my job a lot harder. <laughs>
1: so
0: um, under Massachusetts law, um, and I just wanna preface this, you know, there's a lot of laws that cover discrimination, retaliation in various contexts, both at the state level and the federal level. Um, we're not gonna be able to cover every single one of them here. We're going through some of the more common ones. Um, and also just a caveat that some of these, um, we've included uh, the essentials of a prima facie case, that said, those can vary depending on what court you're looking at and who's writing an opinion. So um, just keep that in mind as you're as you're listening and reviewing these um, examples that we've provided. So under Massachusetts um, 151B, the protected classes that we're going to be looking at are going to be race, color, religious creed, national origin, sex. Pregnancy status or related conditions, age, which refers to individuals who are over 40 years old, uh, sexual orientation, ancestry, genetic information, gender identity, handicap, which under the ADA we're going to be calling that disability, um, and military or veteran status. Uh, if you have a claim coming in as a defendant or if you are filing a claim as a plaintiff, um at the at the initial stage, you're going to be the complainant um as the as the filing party. And you're going to be filing that with the uh Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination. Um, the MCAD is what we always call them. So uh we'll probably say MCAD a lot. <laughs> um so at the MCAD, uh the at the MCAD level, the um, the burden of proof uh, is essentially that the fa- a fact finder could form a reasonable belief that it is more probable than not that a respondent committed an unlawful practice. So it's a lot lower of a standard than you're going to look at in a court case um, when you get to the summary judgment stage or litigation stage. And at this point, essentially, you're just trying to either prove or disprove that it's more probable than not that something unlawful occurred. Um, And as Monica said, there's a lot of different ways that that can be done um, and a lot of different types of claims that can be made to allege that an unlawful practice occurred. So some of the really common ones that we see are are under disability law, under handicap law um, in Massachusetts, we're going to see denial of reasonable accommodation claims. In those cases, an employee is going to have to prove that they were a qualified handicapped person under the statutory definition, that they were capable of performing essential functions of their job with or without a reasonable accommodation. In these cases, they're going to have been asking for a reasonable accommodation that they did ask for or request a reasonable accommodation. And um, Monica and I can discuss a little bit more about what that looks like if anyone's Curious because it's it's often something that becomes a question of did the employee actually request an accommodation or should the employer have known the employee was requesting an accommodation? Um, and if the employer refused that accommodation, and then whether or not the employee suffered harm as a result of that refusal. So the employee has the burden of trying to prove that all of these elements exist. While well, the employer is going to try and prove that they either did not request an accommodation, that they that the accommodation was not reasonable, or that there was no harm suffered as a result of the refusal. And then an additional element here is that both the employer and the employee must approach the accommodation process in good faith, which there's we could do a whole other webinar about the reasonable accommodation process and the interactive process. but, At the end of the day, both parties have a responsibility to engage in that process, and an employer might try to prove that the employee did not participate, and that's why the accommodation was denied at the end of the day, whereas the employee might be trying to say that the employer never engaged in the accommodation process or did not act in good faith through that process.
1: Anything you want to add to that, Monica? Yeah couple things I want to add. So w- one is, you know, we've laid out the standard for finding a probable cause, which is the first stage of the MCAD process. Obviously, if it goes to hearing, um, at, you know, a, a public hearing, then we would be talking about the um, the ultimate question, whether there was um, discrimination or not. Um, and I wanted to, to emphasize, we're going to go through the elements of some other common claims too, but disability discrimination um, and denial of re- reasonable accommodation is actually one of the types of cases at the MCAT that that more frequently gets a probable cause finding so it is it is the type of case that I think um, you know employers don't necessarily always follow the process correctly they don't um, they don't follow the interactive process correctly all the time um, and and as a result of that um, it, plaintiffs or complainants at, at the MCAT are able to get um, get some traction at the MCAT on those cases um, as well as in court. And the other thing I wanted to say is that, um, you know, of course we're focusing on the MCAD, but you can when you file at the MCAD, you're also filing at the EOC um, in parallel. Um, and there are certain cases where you're filing directly at the EOC, um, so um, like federal employee cases, for example. So um, just wanted to flag um, those those two things. But um, but let's continue to um, look at our common uh, common claims um, on the next slide.
0: Thanks for that. Um, yeah, and so the other type of
1: a disability claim is going to
0: be uh, disability discrimination, essentially the employee alleging that they were discriminated against not in the form of requesting a reasonable accommodation that was then denied, um, just more along the lines of the other types of discrimination cases that we're going to be looking at um, where the employer discriminated against them because they have a disability. Um, so that's the there's really those two main types of disability discrimination cases that you're going to see a lot of. And that, um, and and as Monica said, if you're filing dual filing with the EEOC, which usually you're going to be, <laughs> um, or only on a federal level, you're going to be looking at the ADA, um, the Americans with Disabilities Act. So, some more common uh, types of claims that we see are the prima, fi- uh, I'm sorry, uh, disparate treatment. Um, Monica touched on that a little bit, you know, that the employee belongs to a protected class they are qualified for the job. That's often in question in these cases, Um, that they suffered an an adverse employment action, which is also often a big question in these cases. Um, What is an adverse employment action? And then that others outside of their protected class were treated differently. Um, Alternatively, they could be looking at a disparate, disparate impact claim, which would be that the employer's practices that may seem facially neutral actually disparately impact a dis, uh, protected class. We see that a lot with layoffs um, where uh, employees are alleging that a class was in, um, impacted in in, uh, in a disparate way. Or they were disparately impacted um, based on that class as part of this layoff that was otherwise facially neutral, and the employer's trying to say that it was, you know, business need, that there were financial reasons, um, but for whatever reason, it looks like everyone that got laid off was over 40, or the majority were over 40, or were the majority were of a certain race. Um, so that's where you're going to be seeing that, as well as in policies and practices. So perhaps an employer implements a, pro- a policy that appears to be facially neutral, but is impacting a class of individuals, a protected class of individuals in a, in a disparate way. Um, the other main type of case that we're going to be talking about today are retaliation claims. I think those are on the rise. I feel like almost every case we see for discrimination includes a retaliation claim with it. Um, not every single one, but it's very common uh, and a retaliation claim is when an employee is claiming to have engaged in productive conduct. Um, which often if they're claiming discrimination, they complained about discrimination or are alleging that they complained about discrimination to their employer, which would be the protected conduct, that they then suffered some adverse action and that there's a connection between the adverse action and the the protected conduct. Um, All of these types of cases that we're talking about are going to be subject to what's called the McDonnell Douglas Burden Shifting Framework. This is what Monica was discussing earlier where if you have really direct evidence where someone's put in an email or a text message something that is blatantly discriminatory um, and explaining the reason that they did something was based on a discriminatory motive, you probably aren't going to need to get to this point. As an employer, you almost always want to get to this point. Um, even if you are arguing that the employee hasn't satisfied all of the prior required elements, you're also going to be trying to prove that the employer had a legitimate, non-discriminatory reason for whatever the adverse action that's alleged is. Um, If you're saying there was no adverse action, uh, that's a different story. But if you do have an adverse action, for instance, the employee was terminated from employment or uh, demoted, um, suspended, things like that, you're going to want to be proving that you had a legitimate, non-discriminatory reason for that. If the employer can do that, then the employee must show that the employer's stated reason is merely pretext. And that's when we start getting into a lot of this circumstantial evidence. Um, We also have hostile work environment claims, uh, which, you know, where at that point you're looking at whether or not there was this environment that was pervaded by harassment or abuse, as the court has said, um, that's resulted in intimidation, humiliation, and stigmatization, uh, and that poses a formidable bar- barrier to the full participation of an individual in the workplace. Um, on, the employee se- on the employer side, we're going to be trying to show that it was even if something happened, it wasn't enough to establish a hostile work environment, or that nothing happened at all, so there was no hostile work environment, or that it was just an employee who didn't like The, you know, day to day functions of the job that are, you know, necessarily hostile, but, you know, work isn't always the most fun place to be. Um, So with those cases, you're looking at the severity, the frequency, things like that. And um, and on the employee side, you're going to be trying to prove that comments were made, conduct occurred that was frequent and recurring and problematic uh, in a lot of ways. Um, And often in a hostile work environment claim, you're also going to be looking at constructive discharge, which is when the employee claims that they had no other choice but to resign from their position because the work environment was so terrible that they absolutely could not stay there any longer. Um, And so... The standard there that we're looking at is that the conditions were so difficult or unpleasant that a reasonable person in the employee's shoes would have felt compelled to resign. It's very similar uh, elements under a Title VII discrimination claim that you're going to be looking at if you're looking at the federal uh, laws here. And again, often going to be alleging both state and federal law, looking at similar, similar types of uh, uh of elements um I believe Monica did you want to talk about Burlington Northern a little bit and the uh
1: the yeah idea so, that so I wanted done? to sort of dig in a little bit more into um talking about retaliation claims so you know each of the so Rebecca um went through kind of each of the prima facie um, elements that are required um for di- for certain types of discrimination claims um, and um and we're going to talk a little bit about pretext next which is um you know how you how you get over the hurdle if you have just circumstantial evidence um of proving um uh that your your case can um that there's an inference of of uh racial animus based on pretext um and so we're gonna we're gonna talk about that shortly but before we get there um just to sort of complete the conversation on retaliation elements um rebecca went through that you need to prove that an employee engaged in protected conduct. Um, that protected conduct could be filing, you know, an internal complaint or a, a external charge of discrimination with the MCAD or the EOC. But it could also be making um, making more informal complaints to your supervisor about a discriminatory environment. Could be objecting to discriminatory um, conduct, um, you know, or not participating in discriminatory conduct. So. Um, the protected activity can be broad. Um, and it's also important to remember that the protected activity can, um, can, can sort of continue. So once somebody files, for example, a, a complaint, an, an MCAD complaint, there's more activity that happens in the course of the case. So um, after, you know, after an MCAD complaint's filed, then it gets served on the defendant. Um, they, have to, they have to file a position statement. They may need to interview witnesses um and a rebuttal gets filed by the plaintiff in in many cases or the complainant in many cases in in the course of that process um there is protected activity that the complainant may continue to engage in um talking to their own witnesses um submitting their their rebuttal and uh and so one thing that's important to remember is that that's all part of the course of protected activity that a complainant is engaging in and when you're trying to prove the next elements um, that they suffered an adverse action and that there's a causal connection between the two um, making sure that the chronology there is laid out because um, in many cases um, I've seen the employer missing that oh well this case was actively being litigated in court um during this time period when an adverse action happened it and it happened quite close in you know cr- the chronology of you know a deposition of a major witness um and so therefore it you know could be considered um, retaliatory um in that way so we when I look at retaliation cases I make sure that I kind of look at the broad chronology of protected conduct um, and adverse actions and that the causal connection um, is you know it's that I actually kind of think through well what was happening with the case, what was happening with my um, my client, and what um, what what conduct was you know were they engaging in um, in in pursuing their their charge and their complaint of discrimination because it's more than just the actual complaint itself. Um, so that I wanted to make sure that 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 we kind of explain the the, the I what I think is the broad scope of. Um, anti-retaliation protection um, to this audience. Um, To
0: your point, Monica, um, this is also something that employers need to be aware of, that when you have a current employee filing a claim versus a former employee filing a claim, you know, what is the ongoing activity? How is that employee being treated thereafter? Because their complaint can be amended to add retaliation in if they end up being terminated later on um, after they filed this charge and they're continuing to work for you. So you have to be very cautious, you know, even if there is perhaps conduct or, or disciplinary issues, what, you know, how are you treating that employee and what are you documenting and and what's going on after the charge has been
1: filed if they're, if they're continuing to be employed with you? Absolutely, I think that's that's an important distinction to make. I mean, some employees are no longer at um, at the the um, the employer, uh, and, but and so maybe there's less risk of retaliation. Although there is case law in Massachusetts suggesting that there's you know even post employment um, you know employ- an employer can be on the hook for retaliation, um, particularly if they're engaging in defamatory um, acts towards the plaintiff. Um, but yes, um, there are significant risks if you, you know, to, to, uh, employers, um, who have current employees who have filed actions. Um, and so the other piece of things, which I think Rebecca had mentioned is, um, the Burlington Northern standard. So really understanding what ad, what an adverse action is under retaliation law versus discrimination law, Burlington Northern is a federal case, um. That has been um cited by cited favorably by Massachusetts state courts um, in in uh, under 151B as well. But uh, under Burlington Northern, the standard for an adverse action is whether the action by the employer against the employee could dissuade a reasonable worker from making or supporting a charge of discrimination. And that's quite it's quite a broad standard. And um, you know, under Massachusetts law in the case Syed, it's been Um, used to support um, a a retaliation claim um, that involved post-employment conduct. Uh, And so, you know, certainly as plaintiff's counsel, we rely on Burlington Northern, um, you know, in our retaliation cases, um, where the adverse action is not necessarily, you know, a demotion or termination, but may involve, you know, harassment of the employee um, or other types of sort of conduct that don't necessarily have um, you know, a clear-cut, you know, economic harm, for example, um, but do actually harm the, um, harm the, the plaintiff or the complainant um, in the sense that they don't feel comfortable um, with the employer anymore, or they feel like they, you know, that, that they're, um, that they, you know, have been chilled from engaging in protected activity as a result of that conduct
0: and the employer side you know to that would be either to try and show that the that it would not be you know sufficiently um uh sufficient conduct to dissuade a reasonable worker but then again like monica said it's a very broad standard it's a question of what does that mean exactly um you know as opposed to the severe and pervasive standard that we use in a hostile work environment claim What are we looking at uh, in terms of the conduct that would be sufficient um, and what conduct did occur or didn't occur? Um, So we'd be looking at all of those elements um, on the employer side. So another common claim that we see is age discrimination Um, under federal law. You're going to be looking often at the ADEA or OWPA. Um, Again, employees who are over 40 years old. Uh, at the time the alleged discrimination occurred. They're quali- they have to again be qualified for the position and adverse action occurs and that the employer subsequently filled their position demonstrating a continued need for services, um, especially if you're going to be looking at an, ins- an instance where the employer filled the position with someone who is sufficient or significantly younger than the plaintiff, that's going to be something that you're going to have a a, a major question over, you know, what was the reason for that? And was it a legitimate non-discriminatory reason? Um, Because as I'm sure Monica will get into, that could be pretext or or evidence of pretext that it was an age-related animus that, that led to the termination. And that's, again, this is in the instance that the adverse action is a termination from employment um if you have uh, other alleged adverse action you're not going to be quite
1: looking at it the same way yep. yeah and what i would say one reason we're flagging a couple of these um kind of specific um discrimination t- claims is that we're we're seeing we're seeing kind of more frequency um in certain areas and i think age discrimination is one of them where um you know there are layoffs that are occurring or there's um there's there there are terminations that are happening um that are based on you know business allegedly based on business needs um and you know at least you know we have a, a lot of potential clients coming in saying well you know it's really only the people over you know in their 50s and, and 60s who are being terminated what's going on here and so um, we wanted to flag the elements there and we'll talk more about, about proof and 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 um how to prove pretext in these cases going forward.
0: Yeah, and if we do have any employers here or management side counsel and you've got uh clients who are going through layoffs and reductions in force, um that's when you really want to be careful about following and complying with OWBPA requirements um, because that can help you to avoid some of these issues and claims. Uh, in the future if you're complying properly with the law and making sure that you are not uh, laying off a particular class in a um, substantially larger numbers than other protected classes, including age. Um, So another one we wanted to flag, as Monica said, these have uh, been pretty frequent uh, on the rise. Um, Pregnancy discrimination cases, uh, we do have pregnancy protections in Massachusetts, as well as um, on the federal side of things, we've got the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. Um, there are going to be, again, sort of similarly with disability claims, both issues where a pregnant employee or an uh, employee who had pregnancy-related conditions requests requests an accommodation, um, so you might have a failure to accommodate claim. You also could be looking at uh, just a straight disparate treatment based on pregnancy status or pregnancy-related condition. Um, so in these cases, you're going to be looking at, again, similar kinds of elements um, where that there was some sort of discriminatory, alleged discriminatory act or disparate treatment or a failure to accommodate that the uh, employee was pregnant or had a pregnancy-related condition that is protected under the acts, um, and that the employer either didn't accommodate the uh, accommodation that was requested or that the employer somehow acted adversely against the employee based on that pregnancy status or pregnancy related condition Uh, anything you want to add in on that Monica
1: yeah I mean I think one of the things I wanted to flag about pregnancy cases is um and you know we'll we're going to be talking about issue spotting generally but specifically with pregnancy um, with the remote workforce um, and um, and the fact that even with hybrid, people are not in the office together all the time. The uh, the and- the issue that's kind of cropped up for for me in cases is well, was the impl- was the employer actually on notice that the um, that the complainant or the plaintiff was pregnant? Um, because it may be that they didn't they didn't announce it, you know, um, you know, at, right away, uh, but yet there's adverse treatment that that they're alleging. Uh, and so I think that's actually been a really interesting um kind of set of facts that that I've had to deal with. Um, and sort of how do you prove that um that the employer knew that that um that the employee was pregnant. Um, and right. um especially when they're when they're remote, you know, I for example, in in a case, you know, I talked about the fact that there were team meetings um, over Zoom, where video was on every day, and um, and people were standing up and doing kind of physical activities, team building activities on on Zoom, and that, that that gave notice, along with the fact that the employee talked to you know her colleagues um, may not have given formal notice to a supervisor or HR, but shared the information with her colleagues, and um, and so there was you know there there could be an inference drawn that that the supervisor knew about it. Um, so it's I do think that in this that there has been sort of a an interesting evolution here in terms of um, just the reality of our, our workplace and the fact that people are not physically together all the time um, yet um, yet discrimination still happens. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't know if you've seen anything interesting on the pregnancy front, Rebecca, but I, I just wanted to flag that because I thought yeah,
0: so actually I have seen some interesting cases where, you know, on the employer side it's often times. Uh, People trying to be nice and failing at that or, you know, not realizing that their attempts at being nice are actually discriminatory. Um, So, you know, like Monica said, sometimes you have direct evidence that someone, you know, some manager out there not knowing what the law is, not realizing that this is not appropriate at all. Um, without the employee asking for an accommodation, is saying, "Oh well, I felt bad that you're pregnant, so I didn't want to make you work as hard, so I cut your hours, or I, I, you know, didn't think you'd want to be doing those job duties anymore because you're pregnant." Um, and they're just flat out saying that, and the employee is then going, "I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you know, so because it's just a matter of really making sure that your managers and your supervisors are very well trained." And if they're not, or they say something wrong, you know, it doesn't really matter that they had a good intent or that they wanted to be helpful. It's still discriminatory because no one asked them to do that. Um, so you you run into some issues there. And um, I find that when you're investigating those claims, oftentimes it's actually pretty easy to find that evidence because again, where they're sort of naive to the fact that that's not permissible behavior, they just admit it usually. Um, you know, they'll tell you, yeah, oh yeah, I sent that text message. I sent that email. Um, here it is. Here's a copy of it. And then that's when you know it's time to look into settlement negotiations.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I and I would say, I mean, the, the case site for that proposition that even sort of a um, benign comment can be considered discriminatory is um, the Chadwick v. Wellpoint case, which is a First Circuit case, um, where, um, you know, where the, the employer, you know, I think made a comment like, bless you, in response to hearing that a a, um, a job candidate, a female job candidate had four children. Um, and so, you know, I think just sort of you know i think it's important to recognize rebecca's point that um that even benign comments can lead to um to a, a finding of discrimination um and to make sure that you know as plaintiff um plaintiffs counsel i often am, am really trying to draw that evidence out of my clients too who may not they may realize they've been subject to an adverse action but not actually pick up on all of those comments because they are some of them are pretty benign Um, But the the main thing is if an employer is making an assumption that you can't do the job because of your um, pregnancy or disability or, um, you know, other factors, that's an assumption that's based on a, um, you know, on a stereotype and um, is not permissible under the law. And so um, oftentimes I'm trying to, when I'm trying to get the evidence from my clients, I'm really trying to understand every little thing that's been said to them because they may not perceive some of the comments as being a basis for discrimination. They may perceive the adverse action, but not necessarily the comments. So um, trying to trying to make sure you're gathering that evidence is important too.